Hello, and welcome to show number 2406 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. One of the talks that I give is about how if blind aliens were blind aliens, how they would do science. Since they wouldn't start out with looking at the stars and they couldn't look at things, how would they do science? Blind alien? How much cooler can you get? The aliens are blind, but they don't, there isn't a word for blind, just like we don't have a word for not being able to perceive ultraviolet light. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we don't have a word for not being attuned to magnetic fields, right? That's since it's not a disability, we don't have a word for it. So they don't have a word for blind at all. They're just like these people that don't look. How would they start from, we've got to find food and survive to build a radio telescope so they can communicate with other life forms? We are all limited in some way, and blind people just happen to not be able to see. Sherry Wells Jensen wanted to be a scientist when she was young. Unfortunately, being blind as well as female, she was discouraged from pursuing such a career. We'll talk with Sherry, now an associate professor of linguistics, about her journey and how she was able to merge science into her career. And you can hear more about that in last week's episode, number 2405. But first for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Sherry Wells Jensen. I am a big fan of tiles, these little doohickeys that you can get that you can attach to your keys or to your banjo or whatever you want to attach it to. And then you can use your phone to ask it to make that thing beep. Um, And then you can find your banjo or your keys, wherever the heck they are. And it will also tell you if you've left them behind. But my favorite use of tiles is to create one that I just call uh, my spot. And when I'm in a place that I need to get back to, for example, if I'm in a coffee shop, and I'm going to go off and explore and find the bathroom, and uh, I, I know I need to get back to my table, I will just quietly leave my spot tile on my table in my place. Um, I usually have a piece of yarn on it so I could tie it to maybe the slat on the back of the chair. And then when I'm coming back to my seat, I tell my phone to find my spot, and then my table will beep. It's a little bit of a, you know, people are like, why is that table beeping? There's so many machines and stuff beeping around everybody anymore that mostly people don't even bother to go try to find out what it is. And then I can have a little, I can just hear that sound and find without too much trouble, find where I was sitting. And the tiles in particular are pretty loud and they keep beeping until you tell them to quit, which I really like. And so I always have a couple things when I'm traveling, a couple tiles called my spot and my stuff that I can just leave places um, surreptitiously if it's a place I want to come back to. Have you ever run into a situation where an overeager server or anybody has moved your tile? I try to hide it. See, I know you're exactly right. So like I put it under a napkin or I, you know, tie it to something like the back of the chair quietly down near the seat. So they won't notice because yes, they will return it. They they are sweet people. They'll return it to me. I'm like, yeah. I love that. That is really a quite unique and useful way of using those tiles. And what do the tiles sound like? They're obnoxious, kind of. They play. Wait, no. They, you can get them to play a little song. It is kind of obnoxious. 
You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Sherry. And if you want to hear a longer introduction, listen to last week's episode. Last week, we've talked with today's guest about being involved in an experiment about how accessible space travel is for people, including blind people. But in the process, our guest talked about growing up as a blind person and her experience wanting to be a scientist. So, Sherry, why don't you tell people who you are again, and then we can talk a little bit about your career path. Okay, glad to. So, my name is Sherry Wells-Denson. I am fully blind, and I am a, an associate professor of linguistics at Bowling Green State University in beautiful little Bowling Green, Ohio. Support for Eyes on Success comes from our listeners and corporate sponsors. For more information about airing promotional items on the show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Sherry Wells Jensen's path from being a student interested in science to a professor of linguistics and how she is now able to merge her interest in the two fields. So let's jump in right away today, Sherry, and talk about what your aspirations were as a youth. You talked about being interested in science and being blind there was always something magic to me as a kid about going outside at night. There was something about the stillness, something about the spaciousness and the quiet of our little country backyard. And you could just hear things for further away and it just felt magic to me. And I was a big science fiction fan. I, uh, you know, starting with Miss Pickerel Goes to Mars and all that kind of stuff and all the Heinlein and Asimov and all that kind of stuff that you could read and got the big Braille books that to me one at a time um, from our lending library. And I wanted more than anything to be a scientist. You know, I wanted, I wanted Star Trek. I was a big, I am a big Trekkie. And that was my goal. I wanted to be part of that sense of discovery and that community to think that there is a community of people whose job it is to go find out new things and discover stuff. That was magic to me. And it just made me feel so alive and so excited to read science and to read science fiction, and it is absolutely what I wanted to do. You know, I've read somewhere that most children's introduction to a fascination with science was either space or dinosaurs. Yeah, I think that's fair. And to me, it was space, and in particular, you remember Lost in Space? It was a, it was probably terrible, but boy, for me, it was amazing. It was this family of people who went out on the Jupiter too. Um, and they went to different planets and had, you know, had adventures. When I was young, I used to enjoy all those same TV shows, read all the Isaac Asimov fiction and nonfiction books. And uh, it, it was just a lot of fun too. I can understand your enthusiasm. Were you there for your parents, scientists? Nope. No, no, no. It was a very blue collar uh, upbringing. My father was a tool and die maker and my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom, mostly. Did your parents understand your interest in science and encourage it at the time? They knew that I was probably not going to get a job flipping burgers. Um, and since I was kind of a nerdy school kid, they always assumed that I would go to college um, and, and do something intellectual. 
my family is a bunch of mechanics um, and cool people who fix cars and sell car parts and build cars. And it's all about cars. And they were pretty clear that that was not something that I was going to do. And so it had to be college. It had to be that kind of career. And how about your teachers in high school? Were they encouraging of such a career? They were carefully not encouraging. Um, I cannot say that there was ever a moment where someone said to me, you may not go into science. This door is closed to you. You can't have it. It's not for you. But I was a smart kid. I could read the room. And when the new math books were coming in, they always came in late. The Braille math books were always a little bit late because, boy, that was a pain in the neck. And someone had to Braille that for you. And I was aware of that feeling that it was special and it was complicated and it was probably a pain in the backside for somebody. And I was praised for being a smart kid, but just as it was pretty clear to me from reading the room as a child that I was not going to be a car repair person, it was clear to me from reading the room that a career in science was not forbidden, but it was ludicrous and it was not anything that a nice person would really ask for. Um, And it was made clear to me that while the social sciences were probably okay, that asking people to do things like make a lab accessible was sort of nice and a little bit cute in high school, but you shouldn't ask for that in the real world. So what happened when it came time to think about college? Um, I ended up with a degree in psychology, which is fine. It's, you know, I'm not suffering. I didn't suffer so much but but there was always and i think i think this is part of it um you know when people think about astronomers they still have this old-fashioned idea of people looking literally looking through telescopes and gazing at the glory and the beauty of the universe and yeah sometimes astronomers do that but you know mostly that's not how astronomy was done even in the 1970s right there were they'd take pictures they'd analyze the pictures whatever But there was always this sense of it's just weird for you to want to be an astronomer as a blind person because you can't see starlight. And there was this sense of that I was not able to experience the wonder of science because I could not look. And I think we have this idea that to experience wonder is to gaze at the stars. It's to look at a sunset. It's to hear music, that wonder is this gift that comes to you through your senses. And that honestly is not where wonder comes from. You can get the same feeling by meditating quietly. I got the same feeling from stepping outside in my backyard. Um, I didn't, you don't have to look at the stars to have your birthright of a big, amazing, overwhelming sense of wonder. It's not visual. It is spiritual. It is metaphysical. It is something that belongs to you because you're human. It doesn't have anything to do with your senses. Along those same lines, I sometimes listen to a podcast by Neil deGrasse Tyson called Star Talk Radio, where he talks about astronomy and other scientific things. And he once made the comment that stuck in my head. He said something about, you know, most humans think they're seeing the whole world. He says, in some sense, we're almost all blind because we don't see gamma rays. We don't see ultraviolet rays. We don't see radio waves, microwaves. There's so much of the world that we don't see. And we need either some instrument to translate into something we can perceive or some way of understanding what's going on around us. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that we drink the cultural Kool-Aid that says because we don't have one particular sense that we are blocked from experiencing all the joy and the wonder that there's out there and that we are blocked from investigating and we are blocked from being the person who discovers things. That's not true at all. What we lack is electromagnetic sensitivity at one very confined uh, set of frequencies. That's all that we can't do. Culturally, it's very important, but it's one small thing that we can't do. And we have built our society and our culture into a world where that becomes more important than it actually is. You know, we used to go into the public schools and the elementary schools to teach science lessons. And as one of our lessons during the year, we'd do what we called Pete's Blind Act. And I'd come in and talk about, we have five senses. One of mine just happens not to work. And how do you compensate with the others? And here's the tools I use that might be different from the tools you use. And we talk about everybody has some kind of limitation. And it's a question of how you deal with it and what tools and methods you use to accommodate. Well, and of course, by the time we got to Pete's Blind Act, we had spent many sessions in the classroom with the kids, and they had totally absorbed the concept that just because Pete couldn't see, really... The only difference was that he used a white cane to navigate the classroom when he was going from desk to desk to help the kids, and he was perfectly capable of doing everything else. And so they kind of already understood that, yeah, he was blind, he had to do some stuff differently, but it wasn't a huge limitation. And so then he got to answer all their questions about it. I like the way that's ordered, right? You take down the barriers first. You show the truth of your concept before you talk about it. I think that's that's probably the right way of doing that. So you said you majored in psychology in college. Did that go relatively smoothly for you? And were people supportive of you pursuing such a degree back then? You no. Know, all you have to do is wait. I don't want to. I don't want to disparage psychologists. Um, but yet, yes, they believed that I could sit in a chair and fill out reports afterward and talk to people and be compassionate and maybe be helpful. Um, I felt the whole time, though, that probably this wasn't going to be great. It was going to be satisfactory, and I could probably do some good in the world, and so therefore I'd keep moving in that direction. But it wasn't going to be – it did not hold for me that sense of joyousness that stepping outside at night held for me. I didn't care about it with the same gleefulness and the same joy that I cared about the hard sciences. You know, it's interesting. Back then, you talked about having your Braille math books made up for you and getting them late. It had to be a lot harder because we didn't have the resources we have now in terms of the electronic books from places like Bookshare and other places to get this material in hand more readily and more accessibly. And so it had to be even more of a challenge back then, I guess. It was a lot. They were hand brailed. Right? It was the uh, brailing uh, folks who brailed books uh, who were inmates in Jackson, in the Jackson prison in Jackson, Michigan, who made my uh, eligible books, as I understand it. Wow. And I remember vividly talking with one of my, I had all the, I, I hung out with all the geeky people, right? All the nerds who are going to be scientists. And I remember vividly talking with someone 
um, with my, my buddy Greg, and he we were having an argument about square roots. This is how geeky we were. We were arguing about square roots. And we both knew that the square root of a negative number was an imaginary number. And so I said to Greg, well, what if you take the square root of an imaginary number? And and we argued about that for a while. We, you know, we were hopeless geeks, right? We argued about it for a while and then we went, you know, we went home. And the next day, Greg came back and he had gone to the library and he checked out a book and he had the answer. And that resource wasn't accessible to someone like yourself. It was not. And, you know, I've always had a complicated relationship with libraries in my head, because although I love the idea of all the books, to go into a library was to be surrounded by the deepest kind of inaccessibility. The things that you wanted were so close. And I remember walking through our public library as a kid, just running my hands across all the books, thinking, I get one book at a time. Look at all these books. And I couldn't read any of them. Uh, you know, this was in the 1970s, so we didn't we didn't scan books then. If I wanted to read any of those books, I would have to, well, I'd have to have someone find me the book I wanted, which I couldn't do, and then I'd have to have someone read it to me, or I'd have to send it off. Yeah, you you couldn't even peruse the books in the library to see what was around. Yeah, no, it was a card catalog. Remember those? Like you'd open it up, and so even the even the names of the books were a mystery to me. So then you decided to go on to graduate school. I did. So I was in the Peace Corps and we had Spanish teachers and these Spanish teachers. Oh, my God. They were amazing. They were these they were they were all women. And I thought they were they had to be psychic. I would walk into that room and I would be trying to communicate and they would give me just the words and just the chunk of grammar that I needed. And in an hour and a half, I could feel my ability to communicate morphing. I went in to the classroom in the morning with one state of ability to communicate. And I came out afterward a changed human. And I could say things to the other people around me that I could not say an hour and a half ago. And it was so much fun, so much fun. And I had so much admiration for their work. And we had a little bit of a bumpy start. You know, they wanted to put me alone with one teacher. uh, And I didn't like that. And um, I solved that problem in a very super um, grown-up, sophisticated way by bursting into tears in the middle of class and running out because <laughs> I wanted to be in a classroom with other people. The, the, some of their techniques were to show pictures and have people describe pictures. And again, in a very grown-up way, I burst into tears again and ran out. Um, you know, I was far from home in my in my defense and, and much younger. So, is this the experience that? started your interest in linguistics? Yes. When I got out of the Peace Corps, I said, I must be one of these magic people that teaches language. And when I got into graduate school, I said, I discovered the field of linguistics, which is basically science with language added, doing science with language, doing science with communication. And that was pretty good. And what was your experience in the Peace Corps like after this initial language training period? It's a little bit hit or miss. I mean, Every culture has their own set of ideas about disability. I, in some ways, was lucky to be a foreigner uh, because they didn't they had they didn't know what to expect of an American, uh, and uh, being a disabled American was a little. They were just kind of like, we don't know what you're going to do, but whatever it is, um, okay, maybe. And I was not expected to do much, so I don't know. It was kind of a mixed bag, I guess. Where were you? 
I was in Ecuador. Ecuador is beautiful. There's there's coastline, there's mountains, there's the jungle. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. And what was your assignment? I taught English, as a matter of fact, a little bit, though I had no, not really a lot of training in it. What I did that I'm the proudest of is this. Um, the United States used to, and maybe still does, export pesticides that are no longer legal here to other countries. And every year when I was in the Peace Corps, documented evidence every year of people becoming sick or sometimes dying because of the pesticide use in their fields or for, for example, using the pesticide containers later, which were these strong, brightly colored metal cans, they would use them to hold food uh, and they had formerly contained pesticides. And so they, uh, they would become poisoned. And there is an even chance that my blindness was caused by pesticide poisoning um, when my mom was pregnant in a, in a rural counties in Michigan. And so I would, uh, a couple of my Peace Corps buddies and I would hike into these little towns in the middle of nowhere with our musical instruments. I played the banjo. We had a couple guitarists and we'd go set up in the town square and we played bluegrass, which is really fun for us and drink a certain quantity of rum. Um, we played bluegrass. And then at some point when we had a crowd-ish of folks, we'd say, you know, I, you know we got a story to tell you. And I would say how um, it's a it's a good chance that I am blind because of pesticide poisoning. And these are the pesticides that you guys use on your fields. And they're very dangerous. And then we would leave because the next day we, we'd get done, we pack up when we go. And then the ministerial would send an Ecuadorian man uh, in after us because we were, we were three, three American women, right? playing bluegrass and drinking rum. Were we, were we reliable? I don't know. So they would send in a guy later and say, you know that crazy story, those, those Americans with their banjos and things were telling you, that's probably true. That's probably why she's blind. And so can we talk to you again about the pesticides and how you're using them and how you should wear masks and how we can uh, work with you to be safer? Wow. How nice to have contributed to some new information being transmitted to these people and changing what they did. I hope so. And saving lives. I hope so. I mean, I, we, we'll never know, right? We certainly brought some fun music to people who had never seen a banjo before, most of them. So it sounds like you finally found your passion in, in linguistics, which was great. And then eventually you began to marry that more and more with science. The thing that a linguist can do if they're interested in science is they can talk about message construction. So if you know about language and you're, you're thinking about language and thought, how would you put together a communication to be sent via radio waves to an extraterrestrial civilization that knows nothing about you and only has your radio signal to go on? How would you build that message? My very first semester at Bowling Green State University, uh, I as a very cheeky uh, new hire was asked by our chair, what kind of class would you like to teach in the, t in the summer? And I said, well, Dr. Weimer, I would like to teach a class in alien linguistics. And instead of telling me that I was a ridiculous human being and I should go away, he said, okay, why don't you do that? <laughs> Which meant that I did a lot of research that year to make, make that class happen and did a lot of thinking about the structure of possible human languages and how, how thought and language interact and how your body plan might change the way your language is and how which senses you have might change the order of science acquisition that you do in your culture and how that might change your culture. And I did a lot of fascinating reading 
And then I ended up 14 years later at a colloquium at the Search for Extraterrestrial Institute SETI. And it, I've never, I've never thought, had a second thought about it since then. That's uh, language and thought and astronomy and aliens and disability and access have been what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so. Kind of interesting how your life came full circle back to science again and integrating your interest in linguistics. I am the luckiest human. I just really am. I'm in a place now where I can talk to people about what they dreamed about doing and hoping that people will catch that initial dream and go for it. But still, if you didn't, if they took that from you back a long time ago, that there's still a way of working around and doing what you really want to do. And for anybody who wants to hear more about how Sherry's come full circle and gotten involved in exploring accessibility of space travel, listen to last week's show. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to contact Sherry Wells Jensen and how to learn more about her work. Well, Sherry, if people had questions for you about linguistics, science, or just about things in general, where could they contact you? I'm always happy to get emails from folks. My email is S-W-E-L-L-S-J, Swelschut, at bgsu.edu for BowlingGreenStateUniversity.edu. Always happy to chat with people. And your website? SherryWellsJensen.com. I have one last question. Yeah. Do you talk Klingon? Um, so, <laughs> kind of, not really. Um, when I, the last time I taught an undergraduate linguistics class, I gave the students the option. Um, we wanted, I wanted to do a little language learning, and I gave them the, the option of studying Duolingo Hawaiian or Duolingo Klingon, and a lot of them took Klingon, so I learned a little bit of Klingon. I understand there's quite a following <laughs> of people who speak Klingon. You know, I was at a language creation um, conference in, uh, I was in DC at the Library of Congress last year. And I got at a language creation conference, I got to meet Mark Okren, who is the creator of Klingon. And what a lovely, lovely man, just super, super self-effacing and kind and funny. And, you know, he says that he just built this language. He didn't know what would come of it. And all of a sudden, you could do that all day. I mean, there's just everybody wants everything in Klingon. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's great. Have you had any other connections with Star Trek? I worked on a Star Trek episode, which was the most amazing thing I've ever done in my whole life. Season three of Star Trek Discovery. Um, I worked as a linguistic consultant on that thing. What fun that must have been. Anyway, in case you missed any of that information in the audio, you can always find it in the show notes associated with this episode. And this episode is number 2406. Just look for that at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And in the show notes, we'll also have a link to last week's episode in which we talked about Sherry and her experience as a blind person in some space habitats testing accessibility. That was a fun show. That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about BiPED, a smart mobility aid. 
Now the technology used in self-driving cars comes to a smart harness worn by the blind to warn of obstacles and assist in navigating using a combination of GPS and audio feedback. We'll talk with co-founder and CEO Mael Fabienne about the development of the biped device, the technology behind it, and how it works. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoy Eyes on Success, be sure to tell a friend about it, and we hope you and your friend will join us for next week's episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.